One thing I thought I wanted to ask earlier, maybe we can just do it now, is you uh, something you tweeted. See when was that? In April. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> I have it open here. Yeah. So the you tweeted who had big successes in science academia while starting their PhD with thirty plus. I'm assuming that means years old, not just yo. I could take some inspiration to still starting that direction as a hashtag first gen. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what was the, I guess, in some sense, the motivation seems kind of obvious behind this, but could you maybe elaborate on that a bit? Like why you tweeted that? And, mm-hmm. you know. So first of all, it's just in general, very interesting to just find good role models <laughs> in science. Um, and then just hear, yeah, just like in general, what what role models do other people have? Even just how do they interpret the question? What makes success in science? Um, because someone even asked, oh, um, I started after 30, but I don't know whether I count as success. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly why I asked, right? What do you define as success? And if the person says, I'm, I'm very happy with my career, then you can, of course, frame that as success. Um, so I'm just in general, just very curious about humans. And then, of course, the personal question is, I'm I'm steering towards the 30 and I uh, haven't yet decided whether I want to do a PhD soon or at all. Probably I will do one, but it's also, it's just really threatening. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely first generation academic. I didn't grow up with anyone in my surrounding having a degree. And one of the reasons why then just studying took me quite a while. I mean, I also did many, many things on the side, um, really like already working. And as you said, like lots of science communication as well. But it really took me so so long, partially, because I felt like I was not allowed to. <laughs> like, I felt like um, others can do uh, that, but I can't do it. Like really going into, like doing a PhD. Like for me, it was like, okay, this is like a huge thing. Um, and just having the degree that officially permits to do that is not enough. There's like a lot of other things. And so I felt like there were a lot of invisible beliefs that I, I, that really also were holding me back to just finish everything up sooner. Because if I could go back, then I would just like speed up the, both the undergraduate and the graduate degree to, to just do it. Right. Because by now I, I feel like I could, but yeah. So, um, I was wondering whether I was already kind of too late to, to even still consider this as a as a yeah uh, meaningful route or whether whether it doesn't really matter so just trying to get some insight into that yeah yeah it's weird these kind of expectations between people who come from an academic background or not i mean for example in my case i mean i guess i'm second generation i think i'm not sure any of my grandparents finished or even started high school I think my English granddad might have, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, my German grandparents left school at like 12 or something. Um, yeah. And my mum somehow then managed to get a PhD from a foreign country, which is <laughs> quite the achievement, I guess. But that's the weird thing. So, like, you know, I grew up in a household where both my parents studied and my mum had a PhD. And But the weird thing is, like, it was never a thing. I don't. I, my mum never put her doctorate into her, like, name or anything, or like a passport or anything. It's just like there's this book in our house that has my mom's name on it yes. and says, you know, PhD or whatever. And so like in, in a sense, like it doesn't, you know, I grew up in a, in an academic household, but it didn't feel like it, but um, I think nonetheless, of- the expectations are probably very different because to me, it's very normal to yes. me, like doing a PhD is just like, I mean, I always say slightly almost intentionally confrontational to, to say like, you know, you get a PhD by doing your job for three years and then you mm-hmm. have a PhD. Yes. Like it's just a job, right? But I totally understand how 
it can seem like this very fancy, weird, sometimes even bad thing uh, if if you're not from that kind of background. Yeah. So um, I think there were a lot of implicit beliefs that I just had by not having that as a normal thing uh, in my surrounding. And I mean, in my case, my family literally brought me <laughs> to my to my undergraduate first undergraduate year, and they were like. Yeah, I mean, good luck. We really support you, but we have no idea, no idea about any of that. So uh, <laughs> please go do this. We have no idea how any of this works. And I couldn't, like, there were just no people to ask questions. And actually, this is a good way to also make the transition. I think that's one of the reasons why I do really care about science communication and also just teaching people that it's not uh, this complete different realm that you can't enter, but it's very, it's very intertwined with everyday life. It's not something mystical. I, for, for example, I've, I've mentored um, a girl before to write this kind of research project for, for, is it high school? Yeah, I think so. Where she was like, I don't know what to research, like to do like for this project. It's like, it's like so difficult and, and abstract. You like have to do like some math or like, uh, and then I was like, well, what are you interested in? Right? Like write down yeah. on one side, what are you interested in everyday life? And then on the other hand, what are your favorite subjects? And then we just connect them and then we will make up a topic. So for example, is she using TikTok? Okay. Why, why are certain things? What, what is a good property to make things viral on TikTok? How, what does viral mean? You could, you could look at this from so many, like you can, can, can look at it from psychology. You can look at it from maybe, I don't know, graph theory. There's like so many options. And then you have something you're really, really excited about. But you can make it science, right? And um, I think this is really at the core of why I find science communication so exciting. Because for me, growing up, it felt like there's this secret world where scientists do their things. But I think that, yeah, I mean, of course, it is actually a job where people are like distant from other like people in what they do. But also it everything, it is just very, you can direct it to everyday things um, and the individual things, like the individual tasks you do as a scientist, they're not magical. You're not like, I don't know, shooting around lasers or interacting with floating interfaces in the air. Like it's not, so, <laughs> it's not mystical in any way. And it's actually fun. Uh, and I wish someone had told me that earlier, really, um, that you just have to put in the work, but you can totally enter even if you're, if you feel like an outsider in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, in some sense, right, being a scientist is just the the natural curiosities that everyone has, the kind of questions you go like, why is that? And then you just, for some reason, spend three years on that question or 10 years on that question or however long. It's yes. just actually trying to find an answer and not just leaving the question kind of hanging. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it is so weird. And I think maybe, you know, as I said earlier, just like me knowing like, okay, my, my you know, my mom did this thing. And, you know, most of my friends' parents did something like that. You know, it's not like you're like, told anything per se, like how it works. Or you, yeah. I had like no contact to anything. I didn't really know anyone at universities either, that kind of thing. But it's just this thing of like, okay, can't, like my mom did it. Like it can't be that difficult. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Can you, what is your master's exactly? Because I looked it up and it seems to be uh, a bit of an unusual one, right? It's not the kind of standard you're in one place. Or are you in one place for two years? It seemed like it was like a several universities and... Yes, it's the yeah. joint uh, program uh, or the middle European uh, interdisciplinary master's program in cognitive science. So it's 
MyCoxy uh, cognitive science uh, program. And yeah, it, I think it's four universities that built it together. Um, and, and you have one mandatory Erasmus semester at one of the other universities. Yeah, I found it quite rewarding. So yeah, <laughs> can recommend it. It's uh, in, in Vienna, it's at the philo- philosophy faculty, but there's a lot of freedom in the curriculum where you can really choose from basically any other university in, in Vienna, from the technical to the biological med- medical one to the, the economics one. And yeah, if you, if you can justify how it is related to, to cognitive science. Um, and then they also work with many, many labs. So part of the first semester was really actually practically doing a lot of lab visits and they really try to give us a good perspective how broad cognitive science is it, by showing all the things that are somehow related to this topic so i think um it's I, i'm really glad i took it okay are you you still doing it or you're finished or what's I'm the status there? currently finishing up my master thesis so end of the month i hope to be done okay and you're still doing interviews that's brave <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe you're organized, but I spent the last month of my thesis usually frantically doing my master's thesis, afraid of not getting finished. <laughs> um, I don't know. I had very hard deadlines. I don't know what I think is different. We don't different have places. any hard deadlines. <laughs> ah, okay. Now I had like, this is your day. And if you don't finish, then mm. you. But yeah, can you talk about your master's project or is that, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, secret, ongoing, yes. whatever? I, I can. Uh, it's a theoretical work on uh, basically bounded rationality. So historically, there has been the great rationality debate in the cognitive sciences uh, between different different kinds of uh, research traditions. And currently, you would say one is the kind of the axiomatic approach and one the ecological. And I felt like you can really revisit this conflict with newer concepts from artificial intelligence and just really go down on the formal level and look at the assumptions and then just kind of lose <laughs> the conflict and learn a lot from it. Um, and I think it also has practical implications. Can you elaborate a bit on what it means to tackle this from AI? So... One easy concept you can, for example, introduce. So, okay, so <laughs> big topic, right? Behavioral economics, you have all those topics with heuristics and biases. Um, and then one approach you can take is just really looking, for example, at computational complexity, but also computational rationality, where you really factor into the optimal, the optimal solution, the cost of computation and the opportunity cost of action or not, not acting yet into any computation you take, basically. Um, and then you already lower the bound of, of what rationality even means. Because in the cognitive science, you have like this normative idea. You also have it in economics of what rationality means. And by factoring in just like our understanding of <laughs> computational constraints, you can already um, look at the whole topic from a resource rational um, yeah, perspective, where, where some of the so-called or quote-unquote biases already become optimal just by factoring in that you have to speed accuracy trade-off. So that would be one part where you can just basically bring, bring them closer together. But that's, of course, not all. Um, the other thing, the other question or the other perspective I'm taking is from the uh, approach by looking at the different approaches from a, from the Marian level approach, um, like the levels of Mar analysis, where there were some debates whether 
you can use that <laughs> to reduce one to the other. Um, so some claimed that before, then another si side said, okay, this is impossible. And I do agree that you cannot reduce one side to the other level because that's literally what the levels say, right? You, you have to have both understandings and one is not only the other, uh, but it's literally a different level of analysis. I mean, it's a philosophic, philosophical debate we could have now. But yeah, so I'm just basically arguing through all of this and then um, saying what this means for for just for practical implications for rationality enhancement. Uh, okay, uh, briefly, theoretical means you're doing formal models or you're doing no, I'm a doing more general language. discussion kind of. <laughs> I'm writing it. Yes, it's philosophical yeah, words. Um, yeah, yeah, like. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but it's actually really hard. <laughs> um, I think in the beginning I was like, yeah, I really don't want to do something empirical. <laughs> uh, let me get, go take the easier way. But actually How's writing is really hard um, because you have to really understood everything before you can even start writing. So I think it's very demanding. Um, you have to be very precise in, in your own understanding. So, yeah. Um, and I think, I, I also think there is already, there is really a lot of data in behavioral economics, right? The, the heuristics and bias tradition was ran for quite a long while and is still continuing. They're continuously gathering a lot of data. We have a lot of papers on that. Uh, and I think just putting and publishing one more result in that perspective doesn't really add. But I think um, really conceptually adding a lot of things together can really help to yeah, just have more meaningful conversations across disciplines. And that's really what cognitive science is for me. A really just interdisciplinary dialogue where you're like, okay, wow, okay, rationality seems to be a topic in economics, <laughs> in AI, <laughs> in philosophy, in psychology. Uh, but they sometimes seem to uh, have some misunderstandings and also like, of course, meaningful conflicts. But part of it is really a language problem, <laughs> like using the same terms to mean different things or the other way around. So I, I do think conceptual research can really add. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's just about you saying the, the writing is hard. Um, you know, I think when you when you do empirical work, you always go, like, oh God, I wish I was doing something theoretical because I didn't have to collect all the data and deal with all of that stuff. But I think at least the writing is pretty easy then because you have your results and your methods and that's just the big block of what you're writing about and then you the rest is then almost usually fairly easy to write yes. because you just have this clear core in the middle whereas i guess to some extent how are you dealing with that problem because it seems to me like when you're doing something that's purely words <laughs> stupid as it sounds but the kind of thing you're doing uh, one problem i have with these kind of things sometimes is that you can basically change everything all the time like you can you know, with an experiment, at some point you have your experiment and you have your data, and then you have a clear structure. Whereas, it seems to me in your case, you could very easily rethink the entire thing from the ground all the time and just end up running in circles. Yes, that is a beautiful analysis that you did of my first month <laughs> trying to start on this project. Um, and then I had a very, or still have a very supportive supervisor that forced me to commit at some point and really say, be very clear uh, with my sentences of this is out of scope of this work, <laughs> which I really have to learn uh, to say, okay, what are the questions I'm actually asking? What are the questions I'm not asking? Yeah, because you can always go deeper and deeper and deeper and you can always reframe the question and 
Uh, yeah, but I also think just taking time to really have the insight what I'm even talking about, that was just not trivial because I think the same is in, with, with uh, empirical science over time. You can't predict where exactly you will come out. Uh, and I felt the same with, with, um, with theoretical work as well, because I was just reading up very broadly. And in the beginning, I just didn't know what exactly I wanted to argue. And it had to just really form yeah. over time. So I've, I mean, there's this book called On Being Certain, where uh, a neuroscientist writes about. Is that by? Uh, I actually Sounds don't. Sounds familiar, but I haven't read it. Uh, yeah, but his main points are really that, like, you have this feeling of knowing, right? So when you're like, you, you're walking to the, to the house of a friend, then when you, when you're like, oh, I'm not sure whether I, I remember it, but then when you see it, you're like, ah, that's it. Um, and exactly like this, I, in the end, you have a feeling like, oh, I think there is something, but you can't get fully articulating it. At least that's how it was for me in the, in the, the theoretical work. And I really felt like, man, those pieces, they should fit better together. Why? Why, why doesn't it fit? And then I just, yeah, marched on and read, read everything that's out there. And then over time, the points I exactly wanted to make, uh, became clearer. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds what? It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, obviously everything is. But, yeah. Um, so, so my supervisor, uh, has by now said this is better than many PhD theses he has seen. Um, so I think I really didn't do a good job on, uh, stopping, like on the optimal stopping problem. Uh, so I right, really right. went overboard with, with putting effort into it because I just really care about the topic. It's, it's very re rewarding. I have a lot of insights. I think it's an important topic and yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to <laughs> publishing it at some point. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to read it. It sounds interesting, <laughs> and it's also a lot of the things you mentioned are not exactly what. I mean, some of the things you mentioned are some things that some people in our lab I've talked about. I mean, there's a PhD student who just started who talked quite a bit about, yeah, incorporating the costs of action into these kind of things and how that affects things. And um, yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting. <laughs> It is. Love it. And yeah. When I wake up, this is where my mind goes. <laughs> but you've really like found this one thing? Because I think I'm often much more like I, I find something interesting for a relatively short time and lots of different things. I don't, I mean, I feel like I'm at my, maybe through my PhD, I'm actually kind of narrowing down now. And I, there is something I'm starting to get, I think, maybe long term interested in. But mm -hmm. it seems like you found that a lot earlier. Right. I mean, even before your thesis, you were doing the, the map of cognitive science. And it sounds like all of that leads into a similar direction. I think I have a very broad interest there. And so, yeah, making this map, for example, was very rewarding and reading just really up on the history of cognitive science and all the main publications. Because I think you have to really digest all those different views on similar questions. And in the end, they will to some point also inform what you're currently doing, because you can just already say, hey, Right. Someone has done this before and then refer to them. And yeah, especially the different paradigms, um, very, very important to understand deeply what they mean. But yeah, I think rationality is really like in the, in the term that's used in cognitive science. It is what I'm most interested in 
because I mean it's two rationality there has like two parts right it's epistemic rationality and instrumental rationality so in the end it has two questions uh, what do you mean by is, those two terms? exactly that's what I was about to say which are sorry what is true and what to do and I feel like okay sorry but like okay. if you've answered those two then you're done <laughs> so yeah. um how would you want to answer anything else and approaching this with a formal approach and computational approach um just gives a lot of answers to to those topics so yeah. <laughs> so i found on your website something uh oh i mean i found it it's like on the first page uh <laughs> i didn't have to look too long for this but i thought uh it's kind of yeah maybe i'll just read the quote and then ask my question so you say in your website kind of i guess as an about you kind of statement I care about ideas being applied in the real world, solving problems and benefiting humanity. I often play the role of being an interface between the two worlds. And then underneath that, you have a quote by John Rich, which is, if everybody contemplates the infinite instead of fixing the drains, many of us will die of cholera. So uh, the kind of question I have is, what is your um, fixing the drains or cholera that you're trying to prevent or solve in this mm -hmm. case. So are you aware with the effective altruism community? Well, I listened to your interview with... <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, Russell, so it's yes. my time to say this again. <laughs> so um, I've, I've been um, kind of oriented towards just, yeah, solving problems uh, in the world quite early. And then when I got in touch with just like my scientific education, I also heard about this movement called the effective altruism movement that tries to really use a very scientific mindset towards questions of how can we do good and the quintessence for me really is that in other movements you often have a commitment to a specific cause like you say from from the get-go okay we are here to fight climate change but the effective altruism community tries to basically <laughs> yeah collect people together that all want to do good and that all are very critical thinkers and then think about what are actually the most important problems to fix because there are infinite many problems in the world and uh, having kind of triage and figuring out how to prioritize your action seems very important so i'm actually applying the topic of rationality <laughs> to the topic of applied ethics there And I found my space there in founding the Austrian community and basically educating people about those ideas. Um, in the beginning, I was really open to going quickly into, yeah, more, <laughs> more practical roles there, but I felt like this is really quite neglected and many people haven't even heard about this approach. And I feel quite confident that I did change many, many careers by just educating people that you can take this approach of thinking very critically about where you prioritize your, yeah, just like your time and energy um, if you want to take action in the world. So it's, I mean, uh, yeah, we don't have to go into like a, you know, again, explaining what the, what the whole thing is in more detail. I think, uh, as I mentioned, you did an interview on future fossils, which I'll put in the description, um, a link. Uh, where you explain that quite a bit, but is it fair? So you're you're more interested in. So what exactly is it? A applying the the stuff you learn from rationality to figure out what the best approach is in terms of help, like actually working on the framework of effective altruism. Is is that kind of what you mean? Oh no, Or, um, I mean I've thought a lot about that as well. Um, but I mean I'm really just educating people in the thinking tools of effective altruism, which uh, is being see, very okay. quantified in your approach 
to taking action to contribute the world, um, a very yeah quantified strategic approach, really thinking backwards. What are the things we care about? Okay, what are like size-wise and <laughs> numerical, what are the biggest things that are currently either risks or problems towards uh, the things we care about? So for example, if you just look at, so there's this uh, metric you use in health economics, it's called the DALIs, where you try to bring together two negative measures of health in one number. So it's the um, disability adjusted life years that brings together how much um, life years are lost because of a disease, but also years lived with disability or loss of quality of life. And by calculating this, you can now make the size of the burden of different diseases comparable globally. And then you get an idea, okay, let's say we care about how healthy humanity is, then you can get an idea what are actually the biggest yeah, health concerns we currently have. And when you really take this global perspective, then you notice that many of the yeah many of the things that are quite large are quite surprising because you didn't even have them uh, represented as a problem because they're either not so fancy to talk about or they're just in the background but they're never interesting enough to have them in the media right like availability um heuristic and so forth um so taking um steps like that um is very uncommon when you think about doing good, <laughs> like really first thinking about how, how big are actually problems and how, how tractable are they, like where are actually resources currently especially needed to really ask yourself, where am I doing a difference? Because many things, even if you go down that path and do your job well, um, they have kind of a limited space in, in the beginning, like you will not actually make a difference. <laughs> so for example, I mean, you can, of course you can debate it and, and uh, yeah. Uh, there are certainly edge cases and you, yeah. But for example, uh, if you become a doctor, which is like one career that people associate very strongly with helping others, there is usually a fixed amount of students per year. If you don't do it, someone else will take it. So the difference you make is only how much better you do it than someone else. I, I, th I think it, it is more a thought experiment. You really guide your intuition. I still think you can actually have a lot of impact by studying medicine and then, for example, doing amazing research or Actually, it's just being a, right. I think it's very important. I don't want to downplay this at all. It's more like a thought <laughs> experiment that there are tools like just yeah. asking yourself what is actually neglected, where is no one even, yeah, fixing the drains. Um, and this is exactly, these are just examples from a huge array of tools that the effective altruism framework really provides in thinking. And I think there are many activists that feel like, okay, I could do more, but I don't even know how to ask the question. And I think there's also many people that are very strategic, but they feel very alienated by the people that are doing activism because they're not bringing those tools and this mindset together. Um, so yeah, I think that was really where I felt like um, that's my, my niche. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's what I did over the last years. Um, just really doing a lot of um, yeah outreach uh, workshops, lectures on these topics so how i'm curious like how you got started doing these kind of lectures and public talks and that kind of thing because uh you know so i mean maybe this is just a completely naive thought i had or just incorrect thought i had but when i you know first saw that you gave these talks somehow i assumed like oh okay she's done a phd and now she's kind of through that like opening up uh not opening up but like um yeah, doing this kind of public science work. And somehow I was surprised then. I feel like if, if I'd, I feel like I would have felt like I was just not qualified, like in my 
you must have started in your bachelor's or master's or whatever, right? Um, was that, I mean, yeah, you must have started like doing these kind of public things fairly early after starting your degree, right? Um, yes. Actually, I think I already gave talks during my undergraduate, really. Not, not for, not for money, right? Most of it was really pro bono and just people were interested. And I'm like, of course, sure, I will do it because I felt like that's where I create, create value when there's demand. But it all started with just really attending meetups, uh, where there were other people, um, curious about similar things. And then, right, you bring up, oh, I've studied this. They're like, oh, of course, then please tell us about it. And this is now actually the main point I want to make. Yes, I think it is more common to do more public speaking about science when you have a PhD, but I don't think it makes you necessarily better at it. <laughs> so there's, there's two parts of it. So, um, one is, if you're actually less far away, education-wise, you might be better at delivering that content. So I think, for example, let's say only the, the world best experts about a difficult topic are allowed to talk about it. Then I think their knowledge does not represent their skill to deliver that knowledge. I think some ca some are very, very good at really crossing those huge, huge gaps, but some are not. And then if I'm a beginner and I've not even had any undergraduate training in physics, then I really don't care about any super minute difficulties we have at the edge of science. I It just doesn't matter to me. But an undergraduate uh, student that has just finished their, their course <laughs> and then summarizes this in a one-hour lecture, this is just so valuable. And as a beginner, that's way more what I need than the, the, the best expert of the world. If Right. I think it's two different questions. How much you really know in, like, in a global comparison about a topic uh, versus in a comparative, um, kind of perspective. And I think comparatively, you are very, very early an expert to, to other people, right? So coming from, as I said, this non-academic background, I very early on knew way more about psychology than any of the people that I interacted with before. And there is so much valuable knowledge in just like academic textbooks. And you can just literally sit down, summarize a textbook, find a good narrative to tell it. And this will create a lot of value for many, many people. And I think way more people should do it. Uh, right. There are many public, uh, there, there are many public options to, to talk about things like that. And especially when you read it and you yourself think, wow, this is so cool. I wish I had you known that earlier. Then why don't you tell it other people? <laughs> right. No one is holding you back. Um, and that's the other point I want to make. Um, so especially coming from Germany, uh, I think there's this mindset of at some point someone will tell you, you are now qualified to do this and you get the certificate, but no one will ever say, hey, you're an expert now. No one will explicitly come to you and say this. And no, you don't need any permission to, to just talk about things you're excited about. And in the end, a university degree means you've read a lot of textbooks and you, you, right, you just dive into the research other people have done. And after a certain point, you know it and you wouldn't even officially need the degree. And of course, then you can do the same for other topics as well. You can read, you can now start reading hundreds of books on a topic and no one will come to you. You are now an expert. You have to know it yourself. Uh, but when you, you notice that others know substantially less about a topic, Talk about it, teach them. And I think they're especially online. 
I don't think most of the people that do, I don't know, lectures on Skillshare about a weird uh, graphmanship thing you can do. I I don't think they have an academic degree in that. Okay, that was me rambling. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I also, I think, I'm not sure. No, I mean, I completely agree that, yeah, you don't need the world's best performer in something to explain how it works. I mean, usually that's not, you know, they're so great at doing the thing that often explaining it is not they're just not trained in doing it so i know they're, they're just they're fairly complementary skills and i mean i mean like one example might be that i think i'm probably very good at explaining to people how to get started with taking photos mm-hmm. not because i'm uh, the world's best photographer or anything but because yeah i'm still f- close enough to knowing what it's like to not know anything exactly. um, that you you really understand the problems and yeah i mean like with with photography i would like some people because i do take quite a bit of quite a few photos sometimes people do ask me like you know because they're interested in doing it it's just take your like just take a camera like whatever <laughs> and just you know take 100 photos just do that like that that's how you, that's literally you don't need to look up like all these fancy things and watch 20 videos about how to do something just go out go does i like do i like this no is there anything i like about this okay then try and replicate that in a new photo exactly Um, right and if you were now the i don't know the best expert on uh, lighting in photography then you would say okay so you need this light and this light and it has to be this angle and really be careful with the setting and then people are like oh my god okay i don't think this would even be fun to do um so i think for example in in i think it's completely counterproductive yeah yeah, exactly. And um, so, again, coming back to the topic of rationality, there you also have the idea of, okay, there's, for example, the normative idea, like the ideal behavior, and then there's the descriptive behavior, uh, the, yeah, the, the descriptive behavior, like how people actually behave. And then the gap is the prescriptive path, kind of what do you need to get there? Because only describing the optimal or the normative model will not suddenly make you behave in that way. You need different ways that bring you there. And I think, for example, I mean, the classical quote is just, if you want, um, uh, how is it? If you want people to cross the river or something? No, wait. If you want people to get good at building boats, don't teach them how to build boats, but make them crave for the sea or for, for the other side right. of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I, yeah, I, <laughs> I always felt very confident when I, when I noticed, okay, I learned something that was very new to me. It's probably new to other people. Just like pay it forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah. I mean, like, I think like whenever you do something, you just have to start off and go, well, if I can do a good job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and really the whole topic of, of kind of waiting for permission. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, it's like with this podcast, right? Like, I mean, if I listened to the first few episodes, I wish I'd done a lot of things very differently. Yeah. Starting off with the fact that my first interview is in a terrible room for recording. So there's a lot of echo on my part. Yeah. But you learn it by, you literally yeah. learn by doing. And um, you, I, often... yeah, I mean, in my case, also you publish this thing, get very embarrassed and go, oh God, I can't do that again. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, it's not perfect yet, but, you know, getting a bit better, I yes. hope. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's, Maybe it's similar to like a bit of an analogy to what we talked about when you go to university or whether you think you can go to university or whatever. It's often just doing it without thinking too much about whether you can do it or whatever, but just saying like, okay, I'll try this thing and then I'll see whether it works out or not. 
Und äh, oft mit Dozen. <lacht> Sometimes it does. Ja. Ja. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like with, well, like we, we just talked briefly about this kind of the difference between having lots of breadth of knowledge and like very precise knowledge, but going really deep in it. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that when it comes to science communication? Because, I mean, this is maybe a similar question to what I just asked, but I mean, I don't know whether you would call yourself a journalist in that sense, but the problem, like, for example, with like science journalism a lot is that, you know, most writers don't really know the topic they're writing about because they can't, right? Because they have to know, like, especially if you're like a science writer for a major uh, newspaper or whatever, I mean, they might have, you know, you might be focused on psychology or whatever, but, you know, this is the broad, a very broad topic still. So within, I don't know, do you try and like really just focus on the one niche of rationality etc or do you not care and you just you know say like well i know more than someone who knows nothing so i'm going to do it or how do you think about this kind of question of breadth versus depth Hmm. so i don't think knowing more than someone who knows nothing qualifies you to talk to everyone (laughs) uh but to those that know less so i think the answer is very audience specific so depending on who you talk to, uh, you have to, of course, be calibrated uh, whether this is really ridiculous, what you're saying, or whether this is actually adding value. Um, and I don't think there's a general answer. And I think the same is, for example, also true with popular science books. I think coming back from actually having read <laughs> academic work on the same topic, you could turn around and say many popular science books are plain wrong in what they're saying. But I think that's not their job. Their job is to popularize the topic and bring you from a certain step in your education to another step. And of course, once you know the details, you could turn around and then it's kind of wrong, but that was not what it's meant to be. So I I hear this a lot, for example, with Richard Dawkins. So many people who are actually in uh, genetics or whatever, they're like, no, he's like really, really wrong about those things. But I think... He his main job was to explain how evolution can work without assuming there is a god. And first you have to get, for example, all those concepts out. And with that, he did a great job. And then you can start from a more naturalist perspective to go deeper. And of course, once you know the details, the ideas, how he wrote them, might no longer be precise. And you can't, you can't always be precise. Depending on who you're talking to, you have to decide what you're leaving out. And I think also in my introduction to effective altruism, I say a lot of things that are not true if you look at them from a different perspective, but that's not like, what does that even mean? So when when you create an educational product, which is a, a lecture, that's what a lecture is, then you think about a certain transformation, which is a certain step where people are to where they will be afterwards. And it's not something else suddenly. So um regarding depth and breath uh, breath that's that's what i'm asking myself right so who am i talking to do i know more than them because otherwise of course i wouldn't do it because that would just be embarrassing for myself <laughs> um and you asked another question i think did i um uh, maybe i can just comment briefly on what you said uh, maybe we'll question will pop up then but the I think that's actually what you said is, you know, also still the case when you're giving lectures to, for example, undergraduates or whatever. I mean, if I remember that the, the teachers that really had an impact on me 
through the lectures during my undergraduate, but not necessarily the people who said, I mean, I just, I don't even know exactly whether they said the most correct things or whatever, but it's the people who just made it interesting. Yes. Who made it seem relevant and fun and cool. And then, you know, as I mean, of course, you can't like tell complete bullshit while doing that. Um, there's a certain limit. It has to be roughly right. But there's a few, the few people who I thought made it so interesting that I then was, was willing to put in the energy myself to actually find out what, what's true in this field and whatnot. And I think, yeah, so even, yeah, I wonder like how far that goes, um, whether you're, you know, when you're giving a talk at a conference or whatever, whether that still applies. But I think in undergrad, it definitely still applies. It's almost more important to be, to make the topic interesting than to be correct all the time about everything. Yeah. I mean, um, even as a scientist, even after your PhD, you don't know whether you're correct. There's probably also people with PhDs who think you're wrong because just people disagree always, about yeah. topics. Um, so when would you ever start talking to anyone about anything? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's certainly thing. And then I, I do think you have partially just a trade-off about uh, between how fun is it and how precise is it. And you can, of course, make it 100% precise and no one will listen. Then the value of education might still be zero. <laughs> Um, and then you can just, right. I'm, I'm not saying make it completely wrong and only entertaining. That's not what I'm saying, but find it. It's just always about finding a balance between different things. And you can always add, oh, there are special cases here and another here and another here. Or you first create a, a general picture that makes sense. And if the people like the general picture, they can, can come back and then add more. And if you, if you just, yeah go uh, an educational journey like this, you will will notice it yourself that, of course, often big picture statements are not actually true, but they were still in the context they were communicated. They were just the right thing to do. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a really hard thing to do, right? No, or, or maybe it's just ignored often because I think a lot of people, especially scientists, think you have to be correct. That's That's what it's about. Um, whereas, I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not a unimportant topic or yeah, but, aspect. Um, but that's a but. super important. I, I really care about, so like one part of rationality is epistemic rationality. So I'm really into epistemology and any abstraction you do is a reduction. And every reduction means you're missing something else that is also in there. And now I can come back to the, yeah. to the map of cognitive sciences that I did, like, which is this information design posture about just like different subjects and disciplines in cognitive science and the main publications. And you could always add more publications that were important, but you have to make decisions and you have to leave things out. And it's always a question of, yeah, well, what is relevant to communicate now? And you just cannot communicate the whole picture because then suddenly you're back to the only thing that represents reality accurately is reality. So then you can go to Wittgenstein and yeah. cannot talk about anything anymore, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, that would be boring, not talking about anything. <laughs> no, it's a very good psychotechnology that humanity developed. <laughs> writing is also really nice. <laughs> you're in favor of writing? Okay. Yeah, I mean, so it's, like, it's, like, it's like talking, just you don't have to constantly do it. And it's kind of... <laughs> fixed on on a page or a screen and it's there it's as if you were talking but you're not and then you can scale it exactly it's amazing i'm really glad we have this <laughs> yeah yeah let's keep it yeah um yeah to be fair i don't think my podcast has the power right now to get rid of writing um I, i'm not i'm not quite sure <laughs> uh, i could if i wanted to um yeah that would be a weird species but yeah 
uh, well, isn't that just most species? Yeah. Not being able to talk. I mean, <laughs> yeah. True. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically all. I mean, I guess with gradations, but. Yeah. And actually, we could now sh uh, shift to the topic of, right, when we talk about science communication, then I think visualization is also a very important question. Um, mm. And that's another thing yeah. I, I just comes together with my, my interest in science communication. It's just how do you visually transport certain concepts? And yeah, as I've said, I've made this poster that just tries to summarize a lot because it really came up because um, I was basically done with the degree, but I really felt like I'm not done with cognitive science yet. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying I've studied this. Um, and then I just started to dive really, really deep. And I wanted to, again, create a kind of information product for others as well and made this map so that also people could really see this external representation of my knowledge to then tell me what I was missing, right? Maybe there was something mm -hmm. completely important that wasn't on my mental map and therefore not on my designed map. So I think there is quite some function in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I think visualizations are so important and often overlooked because, I guess, by scientists, in some sense, you know, you just you have your bar plots and that's the standard, so that's what we use and that's it. But. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I mean, if you love visualizations, then I'm sure you've watched the videos by Three Blue One Brown multiple yes. times, and um, you know, it's the kind of thing that just makes everything so much clearer. And also, actually, it it works for me as a kind of yeah, like a tool in that when I think about these things, I actually you know imagine these things in this way, which before I didn't uh, when I tried to learn some maths or whatever. Yes, and that actually makes a lot of sense. So um, there is this paper called. Um, why a diagram is sometimes worth 10,000 words um, by Herbert Simon and another author. Oh, <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. Um, and someone and, else. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, by Herbert Simon. Um, and um, so the point they're making there is, so they, they write kind of a program that describes a lever and a string. And so you, on one hand, you have it as a code written. And on the other hand, you have it as a diagram. And the point is that information theoretical, they're the same, right? There's the same information in both. But when reading just the co code, you wouldn't have any sense of how things are really connected. Like how, what could you move that it does something else and so forth. Right. You would have to really translate it into the visual representation. And this, of course, makes sense because um, that's what we have interacted with. We have some intuitive physics. We, we have a rough understanding yeah, of yeah. the mechanics. Um, and there is a lot of understanding built into our yeah just like perceptual system really um, and that's really what diagrams do right so you if if you have for example you illustrate a big global system then you would first gather data you have a lot of numbers that represent the size of the things <laughs> and then when you visualize them you represent it in such a way as if it was a, an object you can interact um in a in a more intuitive manner again and this makes really big things graspable intuitively for for humans and i think that's just really amazing yeah do you i mean you already mentioned that paper by herbert simon and i'm you know i always put the stuff we talk about in the description do you have anything else like in terms of like visualization or um yeah like visual science communication let's say any kind of i don't know books or papers you've read that you found particularly useful um mm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, just whether anything comes up. Mm -hmm. um, um, definitely. I mean, my cognitive science map, people should look at it. 
It's super cool. That's going to be in the description. <laughs> you can even, by now you can print it on a blanket and then you can sleep under it. So that's possible. Is, have you done that yourself? <laughs> no, that but your... I, I've put it online on Redbubble, so it is possible. Right. right. Um, yeah, but Only that, or did you go the full like mugs, pins, you, everything? Clocks, you can get it on everything. everything. You did everything. I think it's not beautiful enough, but it's informative Shower enough. Shower curtain. <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, <laughs> other things you can um, look at. Um, so I think historically, the work by Marie and Otto Neurath is very interesting. Because they, they developed those isotopes of visual, um, communication. And their, um, their goal was really partially political in nature because they said, right, like a whole nation is quite complicated in how it functions. And then, of course, this information is mostly available to very highly educated people and making it more vis visual makes it more like actually is super important for a democracy because in a democracy, you want everyone to be informed as good as possible. So using those tools is, is kind of powerful. Um, and I've seen a very good post about the work by Marie Neurath on, on Medium. I can, I can send you that. I think her work was very yeah, impressive. That'd be great. And, um, mm -hmm. there is great work by Katie Berner. I don't actually know how to pronounce her name. Um, she has, um, a couple of books. Um, I think one is, I think called Maps of Knowledge. And, um, she really tries to basically do science of science where she, really summarizes whole fields of knowledge and works together with other people doing that um, and, and publishing that as books. Um, I think she calls it just like, I think one book is, or one of her courses is called Everyone Can Map. And I think that's just so so powerful to really try to understand um, this big picture views of, of human knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of yeah this, definitely. There, there's this, uh, this idea of uh, Nassim Taleb called the anti-library. So he says you should have a really, really big library with lots of topics in it that you ha you don't know much about to just really be reminded how little you actually know. Um, so instead of only having I the see. books about the topics you already know, right. also just put all the things in so that you have a good understanding of how little you know. And I think just like having those maps of knowledge uh, is also um, really fun. I think I've accidentally been, for most of my life, cultivating an anti-library by buying more books than I read and just having an entire bookshelf of books I haven't read yet and that I don't know anything about. Yeah, I, um, I did I didn't know I was doing that, but I guess I was, yeah. Yeah, now you have a fancy term to argue. <laughs> yeah, when I go that. like, God, I wasted so much money on these books I'll never read, also lots of them because I'll never get around to it. There but was a beautiful... Like, no, I was building an anti-library, yeah. Yes. 